Grace, mercy, peace be multiplied to each of you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and especially this morning, may we learn the lessons that we are supposed to gain from that transfiguration vision that we commemorate and celebrate this morning. Dear fellow recipients of that goodness of God, I'm convinced, I'm sure, that all of you know what avoidance is. You've probably done it yourselves. You've certainly experienced it in others. Psychologists also give it other technical names, avoidant coping or avoidance coping and some other things like that. They define it, we define it as the tendency to order or change thoughts or actions to avoid uncomfortable, stressful, or traumatic situations. Now, definitions like that can be kind of cold and impersonal, sort of out there until we apply them. Probably the, the most common uh, understanding of this, the most severe, is post-traumatic stress disorder. We hear a lot about that. Individuals that have experienced something traumatic tend to avoid, thus the avoidance, tend to avoid any thought or even discussing those things. They imagine that if they just avoid even thinking about them, then they'll just go away and they won't trouble them. It's not true, but you get the point. They seek to avoid. That's an extreme example, but it's not the most common for us because we encounter this sort of thing or we employ it every day. Maybe one of the, the most obvious to you and when you've seen or done is when you are so disgusted with someone, you're so frustrated with them, you're so angry at them that when you're talking to them, you can't even bring yourself to look at them. You've seen that probably, and you maybe didn't label it as avoidance or avoidant coping, but you recognize that you're talking to them and they're looking down because they loathe you or they're so angry with you, they can't even, they just want to avoid even looking at you as though that's going to solve a problem. But there are others also in their lives. Now that's a relatively minor thing in the scheme of what we're talking about here, but there are other things that are anything but unimportant. All of us have things in life that are difficult. I don't know anyone, I've never talked to anyone, who wants to get into hard situations or wants to have bad things happen to them. No one gets up in the morning and prays, let hard things happen to me so I grow as a person and as a Christian. I don't know anyone who enjoys controversy who wants to get into a situation where you have to confront someone or someone confronts you with something that's amiss or has gone awry in their lives. I don't know anyone like that. But there are instances of avoidance that are actually good. There are others that are very bad, crippling, sinful. And there are some that are just sort of innocuous. It's no big deal if we do that or we don't. How are we going to learn the difference? How are we going to learn to differentiate which is which? Because again, if some are sinful 
if some examples of avoidance are sinful and others are actually good and commanded by God, we need to learn which is which. We need to identify them. So this morning, this is part of what we do in connection with our commemoration, our study of the event of this morning, the transfiguration of our Lord. And we'll study this on the basis of our text, which is a recounting, a synopsis, a summary of that event. Our text is found in Luke 9, beginning with verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is God's word. As God's word, it represents a part of that great gift we've been given of God's pure, holy word. The means through which he converts, preserves, provides, strengthens. That our God would provide those blessings to us. Also this morning, we pray, sanctify us, that is, set us apart for only holy purposes. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. So in a general way, since we know that God strengthens us and blesses us we grow that's how we become better become better christians since we know that's true how should we look at difficulties should we seek them out because we know that we are strengthened that which does not kill us makes it strong makes us stronger one of the few things nietzsche got sort of right by the way did you know that nietzsche died in an insane asylum. I wonder if he'd still agree that everything that does not kill us makes us stronger after that. The problem is, we know, for example, that avoidance is good for some things because God told us to. Young people, God told you, flee youthful lusts. In other words, you can look ahead at a situation and you know it's not going to be conducive to your Christian confession and your faith, so go around it, avoid it. All of us are told to avoid false teachers in Romans 16. He told us to avoid irreverent 
Babel. That's a puzzling phrase until we start to think about it and then we get an idea of what he's talking about. We're told to avoid divisive or contentious people. We're told to avoid the ways of the wicked. In Proverbs 4, we're told to avoid the foolish controversies about history and the law. So all of these things are found in God's word where he says, avoid these things, so go around them. And that's what we usually want in in all things difficult. We want a way around the suffering, the hardship. We want to be able to learn the lessons and gain the benefits without having to go through the hard thing. But that's not always possible, is it? How do we know this? Well, in part because our natural self-centeredness, our natural stubbornness, will not allow us to learn the lessons God wants us to learn except the hard way, more often than we care to realize or admit. And because we know how we're made, because we know we're clay vessels, that we're weak, sinful, frail, tend-to-wander sheep, human beings, we know that hard times are going to be necessary for us to learn what God wants us to learn. But our text for this morning gives us an even greater example the transfiguration of our Lord. It's the ultimate case in point that not all hardship is avoidable. Remember the transfiguration was this special strengthening that God gave to his son as he began Holy Week. So we're entering, we know, into the season of Lent. And God gave his son this special Strengthening, He glorified him for a time and then sent Moses and Elijah. We don't know what they said to him. I would love to find out someday. What did, what did you talk about, Moses and Elijah, with Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration? We don't know, but we know that God strengthened his son. And we know that God gave evidence that he was his son in that spectacular, unforgettable way. And Jesus, as he often did, took three witnesses with him, in this case, Peter, James, and John, who until later didn't tell anyone about this, but did. And we know how Peter used this to say, we saw this spectacular vision, but you know what? You have something even better, more sure. You have that word of God. So Jesus, as we know, knew what was going to happen to him. What was his initial desire when he recognized what lay ahead this next week? He's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. Now that sounds kind of easy when we think about it, but when you think about what you deserve for every one of your sins, what punishment would you deserve? And multiply that times the number of people who ever have been or would be born. That's the suffering that God inflicted on his son. And then something that we can't even relate to, probably hardly even in part, certainly not fully, is the abandonment of his father. God the son, eternal, abandoned, by God. It just, it's 
almost nonsensical, but it's mind-boggling to try to contemplate how true God could be abandoned by true God, let alone what that would feel like, what that experience would be like. So Jesus knew all of this lay in store for him within a week. What did he want as true man? What was his first inclination? What would yours be? There's got to be another way. That's exactly what he asked his father. In Gethsemane, he prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He prayed for avoidance. If I could go around this, if there would be another way. And he's praying as true man, not as true God here. He wanted to avoid that hardship. Who wouldn't? And yet, what was the answer? And remember, Jesus added, not my will, but thine be done. Praying as true man, setting aside his omniscience and all the other gifts, the abilities he had as true God, he prayed, this is what I would like, but I want what you want, Heavenly Father. And what was the answer? It's not possible to do it another way. In fact, if it had been possible to accomplish man's salvation another way, Jesus wouldn't have been sent in the first place. God would have never sacrificed his son, subjected his son to that suffering if he could have just revealed to us, here's how you do it. Yet it's exactly what every man-made religion tries to convince us of. There is another way. You just have to be good. You just have to do good. If you sin, make up for it somehow. Why would God send his son if that were true? Why would God send his son if he could just from heaven say, just do enough good to pay for your sin and you'll be fine? Why would God send his son if God on judgment day was just going to overlook sin? As is the common misconception of the world around us. Oh, just be as good as you can and on judgment day, you know, don't worry about it. Jesus knew that not only did man have another way, obviously no human being could do what he was going to do because we read in Psalm 49, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. It's our one and only chance for forgiveness, for redemption, for eternal life was for Jesus to do that hard thing. Absolutely unavoidable. The hardest thing that anyone could imagine, unavoidable. So here's that basic truth that we begin with. Certain things in life are necessary, hard things, unavoidable. And we don't get to decide which is which. We're not wise enough for that. Just come to terms with that. Certain things in your life are going to be necessary and unavoidable. And here's where we begin to bring this home to ourselves on a personal level. Jesus gave us this example. But now consider, in connection with the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. They're there. They're on that mountain. Have you ever been in a situation where everything seemed just perfect? You're... you're you just met your future spouse. 
and you're just twitter-pated. You're that bunny thumper, and your ears have twisted up, and everything is right with the world, and you just don't want that moment to end, or some outing with your family. Or pick the scenario. Think back in your life. Have you ever been in a place where it's just like, you don't even notice the passage of time. It's just like, this could just go on. You're at the gun range, and everything is in the tent ring. Pick something. You're at the mall, and everything is 100% off. That's 120% off. They're going to pay you to take this. Whatever. That's a sense that we get of the reaction of Peter, James, and John when they were there. Everything was just perfect right there. And then Peter gave this nonsensical response. And we say... I. We're labeling it nonsense because Scripture itself says he didn't know what he was saying. Now, remember, they're, they're nodding off. They're just heavy with sleep, and all of a sudden, there's Jesus glorified in the brightness of that, whiter than any launderer or soap, and there's Moses and Elijah with him, and they're suddenly awake. And Peter's reaction is, as, as Moses and Elijah start to leave, let's stay right here, okay? We'll build tents. One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And let's not have this end. But it had to end, didn't it? They couldn't stay there. For one thing, what, Jesus, or what Peter was suggesting was nonsensical because Jesus couldn't stay there. If, if they had followed through with that suggestion... Peter goes to hell. He's in effect saying, hey, let's damn us three to hell. Can we? Let's stay right here. We don't want to go back. It's difficult back there. It's hard. People don't like us. And now you say you're going to go into Jerusalem and die. Let's not do that. Let's stay right here. That hard thing couldn't be avoided. Jesus had to go for us because we had no other option. But Peter, James, and John couldn't stay there. Could they? That hymn that, with which we began, such a great hymn because it summarizes all the different components here. We can't stay. Peter, James, and John, you can't stay there. Why not? Because you've got work to do. You've got letters to write. You've got people to teach. You've got a Christian church to found. You have to leave this place. What's going to happen to them? You know what happened. Obviously with Jesus, he went on to suffer, die by crucifixion. But Peter? Can you blame him for wanting to stay there? Peter went on to be beaten, abused, eventually crucified by, like his Lord. James? He went on to get hacked to death with a sword. John? He was exiled to Patmos. Don't think of that as he spent some time on the French Riviera. It was a miserable existence. Finally released, and he served then for many years as the pastor bishop in Ephesus. But you read his letters, and that was marked by frustration and anxiety for the church because he said, I know wolves are going to come in, and I know they're going to devour my little children, my fellow Christians. That hard times ahead of them. But they couldn't be avoided. Think of what would have happened even if just these three men, 
Think of the letters that they wrote by which we and the whole Christian church has learned and grown and become stronger. All the teaching that they did with all the people in their lives and they with others in their lives. How much poorer we and the church would be without them. Would it have been better for them to stay? Sure. But they couldn't. Would it be better for us to avoid all hardship? Hard thing to answer, isn't it? The answer probably is no. Jesus himself, or the Holy Spirit through Paul, said in Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, okay, that's the situation with Jesus at the transfiguration. Here's Peter, James, and John. Now where do we fit in? So we bring that finally into our own lives. And we recognize that we have this tendency to want to avoid anything unpleasant, and yet we know we can't now. So the next step is to learn to confront what we must. So avoid, but now confront. We have to deal with it, because there is no other way. If we don't tell others about their Savior, who will? One of the elements of, of all of this that we tend to miss is, is the clear definition of the kind of love that we're supposed to have. I wonder if you include that in your prayers. We pray for things. Give us this day our daily bread and food and clothes and protect us and keep us from getting sick. And if we get sick, all these things we want. But do you ask for love? That we might have that agape love that Jesus demonstrated. There was nothing in it for him. He left heaven without any chance of gaining anything for himself. It was all for us because he knew there was no other way for us to be saved. So his whole existence was outward-directed love. And we're so selfish. We're so nearsighted and self-centered. Pray for that love. It's one of the messages that Jesus gave us by leaving that Mount of Transfiguration. Mark Twain, by the way, is credited with saying the two greatest days in anyone's life is the day he's born and the day he finds out why. You and I know the answer to that. We were born to glorify our God and serve our neighbor with that or according to that great commission. You don't need to search further. Now, there's going to be some searching to find out what should I do with my career life? Should I be, should I work outside the home? Should I be a mom and stay at home? And there's some struggle there, of course. But over all of that is our life's purpose to glorify God, serve our neighbor with the Great Commission, especially to go and make disciples of all nations. If even the world gets how, how special that is, we should. So 
in connection with that great commission, in connection with carrying out our life's purpose, I have to come to terms with the fact that there is no avoiding a lot of the hard things that you're going to encounter. There's just no getting around that many to whom we witness, with whom we try to share this message of forgiveness and life, all good news, are going to despise us and ridicule us for it. It's just life in a broken world, life in a perverse world. You know that if you live your Christian faith and let your light shine, you're going to be labeled as backwards, stupid, ignorant, out of touch, unwoke. Most of you will wear that as a badge of honor, but you get the point. And yet, is this it then? Is this just the picture that we want to, or the message we want to carry from this whole Transfiguration Sunday that, okay, there's hard times in the future, and the best we can hope for is to learn that we have to confront them and plow through them, and we trust our God to give us the strength to do that. Now, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that, but is there nothing more? And then we get to the third word in our title, avoid, and then we grow to confront, but then we want to grow to that other level, that higher level of actually embracing. Now, this isn't some masochistic weird thing that we learn to love hard times, but Paul learned that higher level, didn't he? He had that something that bothered him, that thorn in the flesh. And what did he pray? Take this from me. And he was willing to suffer through all the things. He proved that. But take this away from me, this, this burden, because then I'll be better. Then I'll be more effective. Then whatever it was, if this is taken away, oh, what the work I can do then. And God led him to actually embrace that thorn in the flesh. He learned to boast in it. He learned to boast in his weaknesses, in his deficiencies. Because God pulled him up to that higher level that said, when you are weak, then what happens, Paul? When you, weak, flawed, a jar of clay, a clay vessel, when you accomplish something with your obvious faults, with your obvious flaws, then what's the result? I am glorified. People recognize that God must have done this because this weak, poor, frail individual could not have. When people look at strong, gifted, charismatic individuals and something goes their way, everybody thinks, well, of course it does. Look at them. When that still, small voice spoken by that beleaguered, broken, struggling human being accomplishes great things. And God is recognized as the giver of every good gift. So Paul learned to embrace that, to thank God for it, to boast in his weakness so that God might be glorified. Then he came to understand and embrace that progression, that necessary progression that he talked about. The progression of hardship into perseverance. Hardship comes and we learn to carry on despite. That progression from perseverance into character, how we grow thereby. And finally, character into that living 
hope. And that hope, biblically speaking, is that confident expectation that God will keep his promises, that good things, according to God's idea of what's good, will be accomplished. Do you see how important that love is in all of that? It's not about me. It's not, okay, this is hard, but God is going to bless me in this. It might be as simple as, this is hard. Please, God, give me the strength to bear up under this so that they may benefit. So that my weak, frail witness might benefit others. We're just his bondservants, his slaves, clay vessels. And the right sort of attitude, the right sort of humility is, use me, Lord. Bring whatever is necessary because I know you will, you will carry me through it. You'll give me the strength because you promised I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear up under. I'll carry you through this knowing that use me in whatever is necessary because that love you've given me recognizing the needs of others, not just my own. Give me that. So we conclude with this prayer to our God. Thy will, O God, be done also in us. If hard times are necessary, we ask only the strength to bear up under whatever you, in your wisdom, allow. And we ask for the wisdom to embrace your goodness in every form. All because we know one last thing, that for all who die in the Christian faith, eternal life with our Lord is also absolutely unavoidable. Amen.